Would you turn with me in the Word of God to the eighth chapter of the book of Acts? We'll look together at verse 26 through, through verse 40. This is the Word of God. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask you to speak to us through your word. We pray that you will use it as a sword to reveal what is inward and concealed. Bring it outward, Father, so that it may be conformed to you. We pray that you will guide my lips and my obedience to your word, that you may guard all of us and guide us in our reception of this word and in our inaction of it and our enacting of it. We pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I was uh, looking at a, a world magazine in my brother's house yesterday, and um, I found a, an ad that I thought was really ironic. Probably every ad in a Christian magazine has some element of irony to it. But uh, this one was an ad from the nation of Israel. And it was an ad trying to get Christians to come to Israel had a picture, a gauzy sort of picture of the Garden of Gethsemane, and it said Garden of Gethsemane. And then the tagline was, what makes the miracles of Christ even more miraculous? And underneath it said, being where Jesus did them. And I thought, whoa, this is, this is wild. For the nation of Israel to be inviting us to to observe the miracles and celebrate the miracles of Jesus in the place where they say he did them. Are they, I mean, everything they said in that ad was a lie for them. But, um, but it was a lie that has a certain appeal to us. At the heart of our um, 
of our Christian faith very often and our approach to the word of God is the idea that the word of God exists to lead us from where we are to someplace else that is a kinder, gentler, happier, more emotional, more sentimental place. And so the word of God exists for us not to challenge and chasten us where we are to be a source of doctrine and rebuke and correction and training in righteousness, but to elevate us above the mess that we're in, to bring us through it into another better land, to a place where, where things are happy and where we, can, where we can look at the miracles of Jesus and imagine them taking place. I say to you, what would make the, um, the miracles of Christ even more miraculous? Well, what would make them even more miraculous is seeing them relived in our day. Uh, What would make them even more miraculous is seeing them take place in our lives. What would make them more miraculous is surpassing them, doing greater things than Jesus himself did. Can you imagine that? Is Is it possible that we would do greater things than Jesus himself did? Of course, that's what he said to his disciples, that after my spirit comes upon you, you will do even greater things than you have seen me do. This is what would be even more miraculous, to see the miracles of Jesus, the power of Christ enacted in our day. So we approach Scripture, and we have to be very careful that we don't approach Scripture as though we're window shopping outside of Marshall Fields, the old department store that was in downtown Chicago at Christmas time, as kids looking in to an evocative sort of emotional display which lifts us up somehow but doesn't allow us to enter in. Instead, the point of Scripture, the purpose of Scripture, as we're told, and kids even learn it and sing about it in kids' songs, is to be a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our path. Scripture exists to give us an idea of how we are to walk, where we are to go, to illuminate before us the path that we're to be on. Outside of that, It's pointless. It's window dressing. So I urge us as we look at this passage to to realize that this passage is calling us not to marvel, though we might want to marvel and though there is something marvelous going on here, but it's calling us to understand the root of the marvel and to live by it, to let it be light unto our feet, lamps unto our paths, so that we ourselves might do even greater things than these things that we see enacted by one of the either apostles or the deacons. There is, in a sense, in every scriptural passage, there is the, the, the plain meaning, and then there is, as well, if I can use a term that, that's probably a bad term most times, but there's a meta-narrative. There is a, there is a meaning that's on the surface, and then there's a deeper meaning. There is a meaning that surrounds it and, and why it's told to us. So the, the story of David and Goliath is a, is a wonderful story, and it's a joy to read. Um, but it rises above the Grimm's Brothers stories. It rises above the tales of Hans Christian Andersen because we might expect to do what David did. So the story is told us so that we can understand what David did. But then there's a meta narrative, and the meta narrative is it's put into the word of God so that we will fight Goliath so that we will pick up the smooth stones and say, I can do this through the power of God, so that we will be brave for God. Here in this passage, there's a, there's a narrative, and the narrative focuses clearly on the, the presentation of the gospel. 
at the very heart of this passage is this, this beautiful passage out of this quote out of the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 53. And it's, it's part of a section that is one of the great servant songs of Isaiah, which is a, a, a reference as we understand it today. This man didn't understand it that way, but we understand he, he had a hint of it. We understand it's a reference to Jesus Christ, that it's that this passage is speaking to us of Jesus and his his propitiatory death, his suffering and death on our behalf, taking the wrath of God. We understand it as that way. But it really, the, the passage is not about the gospel. The gospel is at the center of the passage, but what surrounds the passage, or surrounds the gospel here, is the work of the Spirit and the response of the man. And these are the key things I, I'm I'm convinced as we look at this passage, and we need to keep the, the, the obviously clear things, the clear things. There are some who might make this passage a story about the, the, the evangelism of the Gentiles. They might assume that this, Philip, this uh, Ethiopian eunuch that Philip goes to is actually Ethiopian and has no Jewish heritage. Many people do. I'm not sure that's the case. Diaspora of the Jews led, for Jews being, led to Jews being all over the world so that... Uh, that Paul says there's not a place where the, the, the law of Moses is not known. And so it may be that this is a man of, of assimilated Jewish heritage. It's possible that he, he, he comes from, uh, from the northern kingdom. He was taken captive, or not he, but his family was taken captive in the, in the destruction of the northern kingdom, and he retains some knowledge of the law of God. He's one of the ten tribes. It's also potentially the case that he's a child of the southern kingdom. Now, he may be an Ethiopian, but when the scriptures speak of the beginning of the evangelism of the Gentiles, they do so in chapter 10, and it's the story of Peter going to the household of Cornelius, and it's prefaced by the vision of the, the sheet coming down, telling him to go to this household. And then it's concluded in chapter 10 by the, the people in Jerusalem marveling that God had called, had given even the Gentiles repentance leading to life. And so it seems that the story of the Gentiles coming to salvation is something that comes in, in Acts chapter 10. We, some people might make this a, a story about baptism and make the, 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 the primary meaning of this something having to do with our view of baptism. And I don't mind reading verse 37. I, I, it's unfortunate the, the version that I'm reading from this morning, the ESV, does not put it into the text. I'm convinced that God not only gives the text, but he protects the text, and that if it came down to us throughout history, that we should listen to it. And so I'm not ashamed to read, and Philip said, verse 37, if you believe with all your heart, you may, that is, be baptized. And he replied, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. There are some who might say, well, that's an argument about how baptism should be uh, conferred. Uh, it, it demands faith first. And uh, I know there are some here this morning who would say, well, you know, David, this could be a thing that contradicts you as a Presbyterian doing baptism with infants. And I say to you, no, that's not what this passage is about. And uh, you may say, well, David, it seems like a pretty clear. And I say to you, no, the only reason that they aren't baptizing children here and the whole household is that he's a eunuch. Yeah. All right. So it's clearly the point is not baptism. It doesn't establish anything one way or the other. But it does establish certain things. 
And those core points that are established here are these. That the gospel, when it comes, comes with a power and it leaves the, the one who is the object of that power in a setting. It's, in a sense, the setting of the gospel. It's everything that surrounds verses 32 and 33. 32 and 33 are the diamond. They're the glory. But the setting of the diamond is everything else. And we're looking at the setting here. It's how the gospel comes. It's how it goes and what it leaves behind. It's what it does. That's what we have here. And I want to say to you, uh, just as we spend some time looking a little more directly at the passage, that there are two core points that I think we have to see in this passage. You can make an argument about baptism. You can make arguments about the, the status of deacons because it's possible that this Philip is, is the apostle Philip. But it's also possible that it's the deacon Philip. There is a Philip who was chosen to be a deacon. He's listed right after Stephen in Acts 6 when we're told of the, the choosing of the first deacons. And I actually like the idea that this is the, the, the deacon Philip rather than the apostle I think there's warrant to believe it because in the beginning of chapter 8, we're told right after the, the death of Stephen that a, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and, and Samaria except the apostles. And then it me, immediately starts talking about Philip. And so significant evidence that this is Philip the deacon. And it does tell us something, therefore, by implication about the status of deacons. The, the, the diaconal office is an office that is an office of authority and power and proclamation of the word. In uh, 1 Timothy, at the end of the passage, which speaks about the, the need for deacons to be of certain caliber and character, it says, and those who perform this work well will, will gain great boldness. And that boldness, there is a declarative boldness. It's a, in the Greek, it's a word that means boldness in speech. And I'm convinced that this ordained office of the church which, whichever it is, it's an ordained office, chosen by God, directly chosen, laid on by hands, the spirit coming, laying on of hands, the spirit coming, that this is a man, whichever way, who is declaring it under the spirit's power. And if it's a deacon, that that is an office that is spiritually powerful and that includes the preaching of the word of God. But that's not the point of this passage. What is the point of this passage? Well, and it's, it's where the way the passage begins and it's the way this, the passage ends in verse 39. And it's the way the passage is carried out in the midst of it. It begins in verse 26 with an angel of the Lord speaking to Philip and saying, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. It ends in verse 39 with the baptism accomplished. They come up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord carries Philip away. And in the midst of it, we're told that the, the spirit speaks to Philip and says, go over in verse 29, go over and join this chariot. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. What we have here is the authority of the Holy Spirit in the declaration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the spirit who directs this Philip. He is the one who tells him to go up to the chariot. He's the one who takes him away at the end. And when we read that the angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord speaks to Philip in verse 26. We have to understand that the one who's speaking to him in 26 is the same one who's speaking to him and directing him in 29. And that it's the same messenger who's speaking to him and directing him in verse 39. The spirit of God has arranged. And this is the big narrative. 
This is the big story here. The Spirit of God has arranged for Philip to meet this Ethiopian eunuch on his way back from worshiping at the temple in Jerusalem because the Spirit of God is about to send the church to Ethiopia. This is the authority of the Holy Spirit. We want, as we look at this passage, to be aware of all the things that the Holy Spirit is, is doing, all the work that he is engaging in the midst of this passage. We've mentioned verse 26, and I've said that the messenger of God, that's what angel means in Greek, the messenger of the Lord. It's a, it's a special term. It's the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. It doesn't appear often in the, in the New Testament. The Old Testament almost always refers to something that we might consider the pre-incarnate Christ. In the New Testament, it seems often it's the Holy Spirit. Here, we have to see it's directly the Holy Spirit because this messenger that directs him is named later on. And that messenger that's speaking to him is the Spirit who's speaking to him. So the angel of the Lord says to Philip, rise and go toward the south. He tells him where to go. And in verse 26, we read that he tells him to go to a desert place. And it's interesting that the scripture says it's a desert place. It says, go to this desert, this, this desiccated area. Go to this area where there's no water, and there you're going to wait, and there's going to be a, a person that I'm going to direct you to. He rose, he went. There was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. And this eunuch is traveling back, having worshipped in Jerusalem, back to the Ethiopia that he comes from. He's sitting, seated in his chariot, and he is reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit says to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And what has the Spirit done? Well, he's arranged a place. He's arranged a time. He's arranged people. He's arranged that this man is reading the prophet Isaiah, that he doesn't understand it, but he's at directly the spot where it speaks of Jesus being the substitutionary atonement for the sins of mankind. He directs Philip to this man. And he says, go up to him. Philip goes up and says, do you understand? A very simple question. Do you understand what you're reading? The man says, no, I don't get it. He says, I don't understand if the guy that is being referred to by the prophet is himself or someone else. In other words, is this, this, servant of the Lord, this sheep that's being led to the slaughter, the one that's dying for the sins of mankind, who's having the iniquity of us all laid on him, because that's the same passage. Is this the prophet? Is it self-pity in the prophet? Is the prophet saying, look, I'm being persecuted because you're unrighteous and I'm righteous? Or is there something greater going on here? Is this one, this sheep being led to the slaughter, the Messiah? Is it one who can truly take my sins? The Spirit has brought this man to this point. It's the work of the Spirit to be behind the preaching of the Word. It is the work of the Spirit, we're told in the New Testament, to be the Spirit of conviction. And we have here a man who is under conviction. The Holy Spirit has arranged it. He's under conviction, and the spirit, that same spirit that's working in this man, bringing him under conviction, brings the man who will tell him the message of the gospel. 
course, this is the way that the Spirit of God works. It is the routine work of the Spirit of God to prepare people for the reception of the gospel. What does this mean? Well, maybe it becomes clear in part what it means when I say to you, you're not the Spirit of God, and you don't command the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is sovereign. It is his authority that's working here, not Philip's, not the Ethiopian eunuchs. The Spirit of God is in control. You are not the Spirit of God. You don't command the Spirit of God. You obey the Spirit of God. What does this mean? Well, it means that when the Spirit is working to bring someone to repentance, to the gospel, to eternal life, the Spirit is the architect, the mover, the worker, the power. And you can't do it. You can't bring people to the point that the Spirit can. And if you're a typical evangelical in America today, you have bought hook, line, and sinker the idea that you are, in essence, the Spirit of God because you must bring people to this point. You understand that as we read the Word of God, as we look through the Gospels, as we read the book of Acts, we find that when people are under the, the influence of the Spirit, when the authority of the Spirit is being applied in a life so that they will come to eternal life, the human agent of the gospel, Philip in this instance, the human agent of the gospel is simply the lucky person in a sense, the blessed person who gets to come and reap the fruit because the Spirit has done the work. And so here we have Philip. And he's going out to this road, and he goes out to the road. He's obedient to the Spirit. And there's this chariot, and there's this guy, this Ethiopian eunuch. And he's primed and ready to fall right into his basket. The fruit is ripe on the vine. He doesn't have to twist it. He doesn't have to force it. It falls right into the basket. And this, my friends, is this is the way it always is with the work of God in the Gospels, in the book of Acts. So much so that Jesus says to his disciples when they're sent out to preach the gospel, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He says, if they don't receive you, then dust the dirt off your sandals and move on. And Paul himself does that very thing. He goes to Corinth. The Jews in Corinth won't receive him. He says, he actually blows the dust off his sandals and he says, your blood be upon your own heads. I'm going to the Gentiles. And he leaves them behind. The word of God says that as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. God has people in a city. Those people will fall into the basket. We go in obedience and we declare the gospel. But I think too many of us have read the story of Adoniram Judson and thought that Adoniram Judson is our model and everything. You remember Adoniram Judson, the first foreign missionary from the United States, went to Burma, spent 13 years working in Burma before he saw really his first convert. We've said, oh, in the, in the stories, the books about him, and as a kid, I read them. As a seminarian, I read them. I thought, what a man. He did everything he could to figure out how to win the Burmese. Started dressing like the Burmese. Started acting like the Burmese. There's nothing wrong with this. You understand? But where is the Holy Spirit of God in it? Where is the Spirit of God who says the fields are ripe unto harvest, 
who tells us, go out and reap. There is a, there's a hubris in us, a pride that lets us think that we do the work of the Spirit. This American evangelical, it's, it's probably many of you. It's me often. I think that it's, it's my, my wisdom, my, uh, used to be my coolness. Now I'm 50, it's no longer my coolness. Uh, you know, these are the things that will lead people to repentance, to eternal life. If I only know how to present myself, I, I will lead people to Jesus Christ. And instead of trusting in the Holy Spirit of God to have people in a city, instead of trusting that God has people who he's working on, we start thinking that we are not agents of an authority like Philip here, but that we are salesmen of a product. And so we are seeking to sell Jesus Christ. We're seeking to sell salvation because we think people have to be twisted off the vine that we have to wrench them off. It's our duty to break them away from the vine instead of having them just fall into the basket. I, uh, I say to you, it's not our job to win people. It's not our job to sell Jesus Christ. If they have not been brought by the Holy Spirit to the point where they say, I need this. Then, then we can do nothing that will lead them to the gospel. Am I saying that you aren't to sit as a faithful witness on your university campus and witness day after day? No, you're there. It's what you do while you're there. But don't think that because you're not getting through that you need to become, that you need as a young woman to dress more provocatively and maybe then the guys will listen. And isn't this American evangelicalism? Isn't it, uh, well, the girl's pretty. Maybe then the guys will come to crew, you know? Let's have a lot of pretty girls at the front of the church. If we did our band a little better, maybe we'd, we'd win people. There's nothing against pretty girls, nothing against a good band. But where is our reliance? What are we trusting in? And here we see that, that it's simply the Holy Spirit of God. I, I have a vision in my mind of this, and it's a vision that comes from uh, having traveled a number of times as a married guy to Niagara Falls. And I stand there at the edge of the falls, and I, I think to myself of the, the tragic danger of, of approaching those falls unaware. And, uh, you know, there's little islands just at the brink of the falls. And I, I think to myself, what would I do if I were floating down there and I got to one of those islands? Because you can be on the island, but if, unless you have a helicopter... You're on that island for the rest of your life. If you try and get off, you're going to go over the falls. And I, I think of it, and I, my, the vision I have as I read passages like this, and I think about how we try and win people to Jesus Christ is of that entire Niagara River filled with people, filled with souls. And they're all coursing all the way from Lake, is it Lake Ontario? They're, they're coming down the river teams with people. You could walk across on their heads. And person after person is going over the falls. And we are the people who stand at the side to rescue. We've been given the job of rescuing. And we're standing there and we're saying, hey, little girl, I've got a pink life jacket here. Wouldn't you like a pink life jacket? Look at it. It's a pretty life jacket. What a sweet life. And then we have uh, uh, guys who are standing there and saying, hey, I'm a buff dude. 
wouldn't you like to be off on the side with me? Instead of saying, you're about to die, you're about to die. So we're selling ourselves and we're trying to do the work of the spirit ourselves. There's a second point here, and I want to conclude with it, and that's this. When the Holy Spirit is is bringing people to to the gospel and to eternal life, he doesn't present them with something that they define. He brings them into something that defines them. And what we see here is this, this beautiful story of the Spirit's power leading a man to eternal life. Ending with the man saying, as, as he comes to the point where he understands himself a sinner and Jesus is his Savior, with this man saying, whoa, I want to be baptized. I want to be, and I think this is the, the, the beauty of the first verse, which says this is a desert place. Well, we might know it's a desert place if we look on a map, but it emphasizes this is a desert place because the minute this man says, what keeps me from being baptized? There's the water. The Holy Spirit has arranged the water. And so they say, well, nothing. Uh, men, if, you've, if you have proposed to a woman, if you are married or you're engaged, you know that when you, you proposed to her, if you gave her a, a ring, as most men do, you gave her a ring that had a diamond, a beautiful diamond, in the midst of a setting. And you, make, you made certain that there was a, a firm setting for that diamond. You didn't just give her a diamond and, and say, put it in your pocket. <laughs> She's going to lose it. There's a setting for it. There's a form. And uh, what we find here is that when God gives people the gospel and makes them part of his bride, there's a form and a setting. And the form and setting is baptism. What is baptism? Well, we are baptized, Scripture tells us, into Jesus Christ. We are baptized into Christ. And what is it, how is it that we are in Christ? Well, we're not actually part of Jesus. We don't become Jesus. We don't believe, as New Agers do, that we become divine ourselves. What we do by being baptized is we enter into the bride of Christ, which is his body. Scripture tells us the fullness of him who fills all in all. So through baptism, we are incorporated into the bride of Christ. God does not save people without incorporating them into his established setting, their lives, which is the church of Jesus Christ. This man, he may be alone, but he has been baptized into the church of Jesus Christ. And he goes to Ethiopia as a member of the church of Jesus Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ is now on the road to Ethiopia. It's moving. It may have one man in it, but it's a man who has been baptized. And I say to you, brothers and sisters, baptism is not salvation. You can be saved you can go to heaven without being saved, without being baptized. If you commit your life to Christ and look to him as your savior and die without being baptized, I have no doubt that you will be in heaven. But I also say to you that if God doesn't take you immediately, it is impossible for you to be saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ without entering into the body of Christ which is the church. And baptism is the first step of obedience to Jesus Christ and entry into his church. And we must understand that God never saves someone to an amorphous, undefined relationship to him. But the minute 
they are saved, he gives them the desire to be part of his bride. Years ago, I, the first baptism I did, an 80-year-old man who I had been visiting in the nursing home where he was contending for his wife, um, visited him for weeks, known his background, knew that he had responded to an altar call at his Methodist church when he was in his 50s, but he'd never been baptized. He'd gone to the, the, the proselyte meetings of this church, the discipleship meetings, and he said all they talked about was how you're supposed to give to the church, and he ended up not going. So this man was talking to me, and he'd talk to me. He was a very studious, quiet man. He'd read Reader's Digest condensed books, and then he'd talk with me, and that's his whole life for a couple of years. Well, after about six months of visiting him every couple of weeks, talking to him about what the Bible means and what it says. One day this man, Mr. Stilson, said to me, uh, he said, David, I'm wondering if I should be baptized. Well, at the time I thought, well, he thinks of baptism as salvation. No. No, I'm going to tell him no, no. I said, no, Mr. Stilson, no. I don't think you should need to be baptized. Next week I went away. Next week I come in. And he says to me, and he brings it up immediately. He's not talking about the Reader's Digest book he's in this week. He's talking immediately about this subject. And he says, David, why don't you want me to be baptized? I said, well, Mr. Stilson, I, first I didn't know you were saying you wanted to, but then, you know, sound, baptism doesn't save you. He said, if I've repented of my sins, shouldn't I be baptized? And I thought, whoa, I'm telling this man that he can repent of his sins but not obey Jesus that he can repent of his sins and not be part of the bride of Christ. And that 80-year-old man was the first baptism I did, and he went on to be a 90-year-old elder in our church. It's the glory of God that he gives us his bride, that he gives us into his bride and care for his son. How glorious to be part of that bride. 